Please be seated. In the words of the late, great Groucho Marx, hop up there, little Johnny, and let me show you something you don't know about history. I didn't know it either until I read up on this subject this week. Last week, we were talking about King David and his anointing and how fantastic and wonderful that was. And this week, all of a sudden, Israel is a valley of dry bones and a bare remnant of its former self. What happened? What happened is a little thing called exile. And between the time when David was anointed in the 8th century before Christ and the middle of the 6th century when Ezekiel was writing from Babylon about them bones, them bones, them dry bones, first the Assyrians came down and destroyed the northern kingdom, the ten tribes called Israel, and dispersed them entirely. And then Later, the Babylonians came down and took care of the other two tribes down below in the south in Judea. And their strategy was to conquer a country and move the whole population out somewhere else, in this case back to Babylon, and put somebody else in there so that everyone would be discombobulated and weak and dependent on them and have no sense of home any longer. And so that's what they did. So by the time... The Persians conquered Babylon, finally, in 538. The Jews who had been moved to Babylon thought of themselves as Babylonians. And the Persians said, you can go back to Jerusalem if you want. And uh, most of the Jews said, no thanks, we're happy. One of the central texts of Judaism is the Babylonian Talmud, and that became their identity. But some did go back, and this is who Ezekiel's writing about these dry, lifeless, powerless folks that Ezekiel compares to a body of dry bones went back to Jerusalem, refounded and rebuilt the temple, and it lasted another uh, 450 years until the Romans came around the time of Christ and just after and busted it up again. So this valley, this valley of dry, very dry bones was made up of the remnants. They chose to go back. All right, so much for the history. The image we have of these dusty, dry bones regaining flesh and regaining, and finally, by God, receiving a breath of life, it resonates with us in a lot of different ways, from stem to stern, up and down our consciousness, as Dickens might have put it, from our shoes to our organ of benevolence. The whole being resonates with this image of coming to life again, and it in a sense, prefigures the raising of Jesus on the third day. It's an image that's at the very beginning of our existence, right? God took mud and dust and breathed life into it, and there was life. There was life. But also, on the other hand, it's also an image that easily could be tied into our, our idea of a discovered life of faith. It sounds a lot like this, too. Once... I was dusty and death-bound with regard to my faith, and slowly or suddenly I began to breathe the Spirit, the wind, the ruach, they call it, of God's love, and I became alive. Whenever I'm confused or powerless, frustrated, beaten, lost, my best and brightest hope is to remember that the Lord is my shepherd, and I need fear not. Not only will I breathe easier knowing this, but it also allows me a much better chance of seeing trouble coming. 
if I'm not bound up in my fears, especially the troubles from within. It allows me to regain my spiritual vitality and live again in, if you will, the blessed breeze of God's redeeming love. Amen, right? So whichever angle we approach the story, from the dawn of creation to the days of our lives, the impact and reverberation of this story is powerful and undeniable. Ezekiel wasn't just talking about the ancient Near East. Ezekiel was talking about us. Ezekiel says that with God's help, it's possible to come alive again in a new and wholly unforeseen way. It's possible for the Judean remnants, and it's possible for us. Okay, now St. Paul, in his typically challenging way, describes what this coming alive entails, what it requires, what it looks and feels like. He says, flesh equals death, spirit equals life. Well, that's funny. I, I think of flesh, life as being fleshly, or in some cases, fleshy. But the afterlife is what's spiritual. This is the challenging part. And this is the exact subject that Jesus appeared among us to address. Our fleshly life is a spiritual opportunity. Our fleshly life is a spiritual opportunity, says Jesus. And with faith, our spiritual afterlife will become a fleshly paradise. It's a naughty paradox. True, but we can simplify it. In this letter to the Romans, St. Paul reminds all of us we're born into flesh, right? It's biology. We don't have a choice. Uh, we don't have a choice of being born this spiritual guru. We're just flesh. Becoming born of the Spirit, that's what the free gift is that we must choose and accept and welcome. You know the old saw, if you'll forgive the, forgive the pun, the old saw that says if a, a tree falls in the forest and nobody's around to hear it, does it make a sound, right? I think the answer to that, that question, that riddle is, who cares, right? Um, I mean, so what? But the same is true with Jesus. If Jesus came and ministered and died and woke and was taken up and nobody was around to pay attention, then what difference did it make? So we thank God for those who did pay attention. We thank God for their attention. We thank God for the people in our own lives, for those who make faith seem worthwhile and whose love is a tangible example of what God's love might possibly be like if it were really, really real. So let us pray to God for our own attention, for our own awareness and acceptance and welcoming of that gift of spirit, that gift of choice, that Holy Ghost power, because yes, it is all about choice. Now we look at Lazarus. And as we look at Lazarus, we have to look at ourselves. In Lent, especially, we are bidden to heightened awareness of our decisions, the decisions we make around flesh versus spirit, around instinct versus faith, around default action versus choices. We did the history. Now let's do a little arithmetic. Jesus was ministering in a place that was two days' walk from Bethany, okay? Uh, now, when Jesus gets to Lazarus, uh, Lazarus was four days dead. Uh, so, even if, uh, yes, Jesus waited two days to go to Lazarus, but, but 
Lazarus was already dead when Jesus was hearing this, or just about. He, unless he teleported himself there like that, he still would have been a couple of days late instead of four days late. There's a tradition in the ancient Near East, Judaism especially, of, that says that the soul hangs around the body for three days after death, and then it departs to its next destination. And so, in order for Jesus to make the point, in order for Jesus to uh, allow Lazarus to come into the meaning that Lazarus represented, he had to wait until that, that three days was up. He had to wait until Lazarus was not just merely dead, he was most sincerely dead, really most sincerely dead. And then he could come and make his point, right? Because Lazarus was destined, according to Jesus, to become the life-giving power of God, God's proof. For that, Jesus had to wait. And so the sisters, Mary and Martha, forgive them. If you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. Really? You know, you can see why they'd be a little upset, but honestly, for one thing, Jesus, Lazarus was already dying. For another thing, Jesus never tells. I don't remember where Jesus says, nobody, nobody's going to die ever. What Jesus says is, although you die, yet will you live. Although you die, yet will you live. Jesus proves that the fact of death in his own life and existence, and the robbers on the other side of him, he didn't do that. He didn't take them down. He said, although you die, yet will you live. So, in this way, Jesus bestows the life. He bestows a fleshly and earthly life on us, and it's a life which, if lived with a spiritual face towards God's program, it's naturally and continually transformed into permanent, timeless well-being. In the case of Lazarus, yes, Jesus absolutely wanted to be sure that people knew after he was finished, because this may be his last chance to do anything, he also knew that this act would bring death upon him. And the verses that follow, that the ones that Julie read, I can't believe she left them out, uh, <laughs> were that uh, when they heard about this, they immediately started to plot to kill him. This was the, the last straw, because he's giving life not just promise of resurrection, but actual factual life. And so Jesus had to make sure that this learning moment, this stuck. Martha says, I know my brother will rise in the resurrection on the last day. And here Jesus has his teaching moment. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Not just the resurrection, I'm also the life. Not I am the resurrection and the life. There are two things, both and. Not just the last day. I'm here to enliven this day. Yes, indeed, we will meet in paradise on that last day. But meanwhile, we've got a lot of living to do. And I will provide you with the means. I'm not talking about that someday life. I'm talking about this right now life. We want to live today that we're yearning to live and can't seem to under our own steam. I do that. I am that. Ruach, spirit, Holy Ghost power. Yeah. Lazarus, come out. And he does. He does. So whatever you're going through, the valley, even the stench of the shadow of death, ask me, says Jesus, I will give you life. I'll give you choices. I'll make you aware. I'll help you to be in this day. 
there's a Sanskrit proverb that's in a couple of books that I own, and it's wonderful to just look at it and be reminded. It goes, look to this day, for it is life, the very life of life. In its brief course lie all the realities and verities of existence, the bliss of growth, the splendor of action, the glory of power. For yesterday is but a dream, and tomorrow is only a vision. But today, well-lived, makes every yesterday a dream of happiness and every tomorrow a vision of hope. Look well, therefore, to this day. Amen.